Good morning. So I asked you all to read Nehemiah the last couple weeks, but I suppose that there might have been somebody who wasn't here or is not familiar with that book of the Bible, so we're going to tell this story, and then I, I just have a, a simple point to make. So the story of Nehemiah, it's in, not, it's in the middle of the Old Testament in the arrangement of our books, but it's, it's the second to last book in the history of the Old Testament. It's only 450 years before Jesus, so... The story of the Old Testament is the story of God bringing his people out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and they go to Egypt, and they come out with Moses through the wilderness, and they come into the promised land with Joshua, and he establishes a kingdom with Saul and David and Jonathan, and then there's rebellion and revival, and rebellion and revival, and rebellion and rebellion and rebellion and revival and rebellion. And eventually, God judges Israel, and uh, Israel first is destroyed, and then Judah and in 586, the Babylonian army under King Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon, which was the biggest city in the world at that time, and it was in what is now southern Iraq on the Euphrates River. Nebuchadnezzar comes out of Babylon, and he attacks not just Judah, uh, not just God's people. It, there was a conquering going on all over the Middle East region. But in 586, they get to Jerusalem. They destroy the city. And this is in the days of Jeremiah. This is Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, there's several other prophets. Isaiah is right before this. But in 586, Israel is, or Judah is destroyed. Jerusalem is sacked. The Babylonian army carries off the king and all the Israelites captive to Babylon. They didn't just, uh, these are in the ancient days where cities had walls of stone around them. So the Babylonian army had to siege the city. I don't know if that was an earth mound or catapults or sometimes they would dig a tunnel underneath it to make it collapse. Or in the case of Joshua, you just blow your horn and worship the Lord and the Lord knocks it down like dominoes. But all the ancient cities in, those, in that area of the world had walls around them and the Babylonians so thoroughly destroyed Jerusalem that not one stone was left on another. They literally knocked the wall down all the way to the last level. And they burned the city. They destroyed the temple of God. They carried off the people. Jeremiah had, had prophesied that this was God. It was actually God's will. He said, if you submit, you live. If you fight back, you will die. Uh, that, that Nebuchadnezzar was God's man, and this, uh, this invasion was God's will. Um, the people obviously didn't like that message. Jeremiah was persecuted heartily during his life, but everything he said came to pass. Daniel is the story of, and there's some psalms and, and there's some prophets in, the, in the, what's called the Babylonian captivity period, 70 years where the Jews all lived in Babylon, what is now Iraq. But in 538, uh, Daniel doesn't mention this in his writing, but there, there were other Jewish leaders besides Daniel in his time. In 538, Cyrus, who's the Persian king that conquers Babylon later, sends some of the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel was the leader of that group. They rebuilt the temple between 538 and 515 B.C. So we're counting backward down to Jesus. Uh, there's another return allowed by the Persians under Ezra um, in 458. And then Nehemiah, the story we're going to talk about today, returns in 445, 445 years before Jesus. Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt. People were allowed to move back and live there. 
but it's been 140 years since uh, Nebuchadnezzar had hauled them off and Nehemiah comes back to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the wall. And I, we don't have time to read the entire book, so I've just picked out some passages that are the highlights of the story so we're all on the same page before we go proceed. So you can just follow along with me on the screen. Nehemiah 1, 1 to 4. It came to pass that one of my brethren came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the, Lord, before the God of heaven. Chapter 2, 1-6. to six. It came to pass in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes that I took wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before, and therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should, his face not, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? The king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. The king, Artaxerxes is his name, he's the Persian king. Nehemiah was his cupbearer. The cupbearer's job was to eat the king's food and drink his wine first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. What a job. If somebody's going to assassinate the king, poison him by food or drink, the cupbearer's job was to drink the wine, taste the food, make sure it isn't poisoned, and then he personally brought it to the king. Does it strike you as interesting that a Persian king would have a Jewish captive, a citizen of an enemy nation that they had conquered as his cupbearer? That says a lot about what kind of man Nehemiah was. That his king, and it speaks of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all, the Jews that went into captivity, the stories that we have, we've got Daniel, the three other guys, we've got Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Esther. There were some fantastic people of God that even though the world recognized these are not us, we trust them. Come on. Nehemiah is a captive enemy minority and the king says, you are the person I trust most in the world. Come on. So, yeah, so Nehemiah is sad in his sight and, and, or just has a down day or whatever because he's heard about Jerusalem's destruction. And, and the king says, hey, what is it, Nehemiah? He says, well, I just heard about a firsthand eye account of my home city. It's possible Nehemiah was born in Babylon. We don't know really how old he was, but he lived for several years after this, so he could have never even been to Jerusalem, possibly. Who knows? So the king says, what do you want? He says, I want to go back and rebuild the city. And here's another example like Joshua and Elisha and others of these men that go, uh, Joseph, <laughs> Daniel, who go from the bottom to the top in one day. He goes from being the king's servant to the governor of Judah in one day. The king says, yeah, I'll make you governor. Here's a letter. Here's my credit card. Go. 
Seriously, he does. He gives him letters and says, you can have whatever you want to rebuild Jerusalem and build yourself a palace. All at my expense. King hands him his credit card. Go buy whatever you need. So the king, okay, so we're moving on. Next passage is uh, nine, verses 9 and 10. Then I went to the governors of the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So these are other enemy tribe leaders that live in the area around Jerusalem, and they are not happy that somebody has come to rebuild Jerusalem. Verse 13, I went out by night and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. 17 to 20 in chapter 2, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of this, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews, and he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Verses 6 to 9. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And now it happened that Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Philistines heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and that the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry and all of them conspired against together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night. Verses 13 to 20 in chapter 4. I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords and spears and bows. And I said to the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened that when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his own work. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, shields, bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not yet hung the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem said to me, Come and let us meet together in the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. They were planning to assassinate him when he got to this treaty talk so i sent messengers to them saying i'm doing a great work so that i cannot come down why should the work cease while i leave it and go down to you but they sent messengers sent this message four times and i answered them in the same manner 
Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. So these guys are making up a story that Nehemiah wants to make himself the king of Jerusalem, and they're going to go tattle to King Artaxerxes that, that he's building the wall so that he can become king and they're going to rebel against you. And that's not in Nehemiah's heart at all. He's a faithful servant of the Persian king. It's a lie, and he says, No such thing as you say is being done. You invent them in your own heart, for they are all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Later I came to the house of Shemaiah, who was a secret informer. So this guy's a Jew. He's in Jerusalem, living with the rest of the Jews, but he's being paid by Samballot and Tobiah to frustrate Nehemiah. We find out later his, it's either his son or daughter is married to Tobiah's son or daughter. I forget how it went. I went to the house of Shemaiah, who was a secret informer, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. So they can't get Nehemiah to leave the city, so this guy says, you need to run into the, into the heart of the temple and run for your life. And I said, should such a man as me flee? Who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to, the, to their, these their works, and the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who tried to make me afraid. So here we find out there's a whole group of people trying to stop Nehemiah from his work of building the wall. At first, they try to get him to come out of the city where they can kill him. They, he says, no, I'm, I'm not going to leave my work. So then they pay a Jewish person in the city to get him to run into the temple where they're going to plot to kill him. And he says, it's interesting, he says, how dare a man such as I run in fear and sin? I will not go anywhere. And then it says, and then I saw that this was a plot. He didn't see it was a plot, so he blew it off. He responded with courage and boldness and leadership, and that made him see that it was a plot. Come on. He had boldness and courage in his heart, and therefore he was wise to see he was, they were trying to trick him again. That's important. That what was in his heart was courage. He said, no, I will not run. And after he decided not to run, then he found out it was all a lie anyway. Verses 15 and 16, the wall was finished in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, that all the nations around us saw these things. They were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. When the wall was built and I had hung the doors, then the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. That's a really important phrase. He feared God more than many. 
And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. All right, so that is the very condensed version of the story of Nehemiah. Now he came to build the wall. What he came to do, who tried to stop him, and how it came to naught. Everybody got it? Yeah, okay. So we have this entire book of the Bible about God's man who wants to build a wall at the border. Sound familiar? (laughs) That's not an endorsement of Trump. But we have the same issues today. We have a non-existent boundary and it creates issues in Europe and here. God has this entire book where he sends his man, his leader, to build a wall of protection to build up the border of Jerusalem. And that is godly. You heard the old saying that good fences make good neighbors. Hello? Very clearly defined property lines solve a lot of neighbor issues. Yeah? But Pope Francis said just not too long ago, maybe a month or two, speaking of the immigrant crisis in Europe, he said that borders are not Christian. Well, if you believe that, you're a hypocrite for locking your door at night. Walls and fences exist so that we who are inside can decide who to let inside and who to keep out. I read an article by Syrian Christians who have come to the United States and they were asked um, about Muslims who are coming from Syria to the United States and the Syrian Christians said that we should not be letting them in. Our State Department admits that ISIS is in the U.S. through airports and the Canadian and Mexican borders because we don't enforce our boundaries. So the Pope says boundaries, borders aren't Christian. I say he's 180 degrees off. That borders and boundaries are Christian and not having boundaries is Satan's way. Because think about it, answer this question. Who would tell you this, God or the devil? Who would say this? Go anywhere, do anything, don't worry about limitations or boundaries, proper borders or rules, don't worry about control or authority. Is that God? That's not God. Tell me how healthy is a person who has no personal or relational boundaries. How healthy is that person? How dysfunctional is the person who never says no to anyone? How helpful is the person who thinks they have to help everyone? We know somebody like that. He's always on the rescue. They really aren't very helpful. How broken is the person who lets others run over them again and again? Christianity is not a doormat religion. 
We're not a victim religion. We're not a spineless religion. A Christian can say no, and we are allowed to enforce relational boundaries with difficult people. God institutes boundaries, walls, and borders. And we live in a world that wants to destroy those boundaries and borders. God says our word is our bond. Jesus says if you say yes, you do it. If you say no, you don't do it. Jesus says if you make a marriage vow, you keep it no matter what. That is now a boundary to you. And all other people of the opposite sex are off limits. But because we live in a world where boundaries or borders or limitations are seen as something negative or limiting and we even have Christians calling them unchristian, then we live in a culture where very few people actually see their word as their bond. Where marriage vows are tossed in the trash when life gets hard and even God's most fundamental laws of biology and sex are trespassed without any fear. God is a God of boundaries and borders and walls and limitations. Even heaven is surrounded by a wall. Come on, Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem and John and the angel measure it, describe it in great detail. Heaven is surrounded by a wall and it has gates. And Revelation 22 John tells us what the wall is there for. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Back in Revelation 21, verse 27, it says, There shall by no means enter it, that means the city, the, he the heavenly city, Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven, God has put a boundary around heaven. There is a wall. And God says, those that I say can't come in, can't come in. But there's a door. He said, there's a door. And his name is Jesus. Jesus says in John, I am the door. God's wall is not to keep people out. It is so that people can know when they're in. The wall around the kingdom of heaven is the word of God, the law of God that was carved in stone. There's a wall of stone around Jerusalem on earth. There's a wall of stone. It's diamond in Revelation 21. It's diamond wall. But there's a wall of stone around the wall of heaven, the heavenly city. But there's a door. Jesus is the word of God who was pierced. He was opened up so that we can go through. Jesus is the door, but he's the border patrol agent. We cannot just go into heaven however we want. We cannot just enter in or cross over whatever line we want. We have to go through the door. We have to go through the gate. There is one prescribed way to come into the kingdom of heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. The rest of the border is locked down, and you cannot get in. We here on earth are becoming more and more and more confused about that. 
part of the erosion of boundaries and borders from personal boundaries to national boundaries, it's Satan setting things up for the Antichrist to rule the whole one world kingdom, that there won't be any nations or boundaries or borders or loyalties anymore. But that's not my point today. I just want to show you that the whole story of Nehemiah is God rebuilding a wall around his people to keep them in and to keep others from coming in except through the gate. And the people who oppose that are bribed spies of the enemy to create confusion. That's the exact words from Nehemiah. They were there to create confusion. To create fear and confusion amongst the people of God about whether we should actually have that wall or not. Nehemiah never doubted it. It's what he came for. He said it's a shame and a reproach that we don't have a wall. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that the church, and I'm using the church capital C, the church of the entire world, the church of Jesus Christ, in 2016, we are in absolute shambles, structurally. There is no wall around the church. There is no border. We used to have some structure in various denominations. The denominations themselves were structured. That was used in an ungodly way to comp- for competition and saying, well, you're a Baptist, you're not a Christian, or you're a Pentecostal, you're not a Christian, or you're a Catholic, you're not a Christian. That was bad. That was bad. But there used to be some structure and some leadership, and now you can barely tell the church from the world because there is no line. Meaning there is no line between us and the world. Meaning we look just like the world. In a lot of cases, our porn use statistics are exactly like theirs. Our divorce statistics are very similar. 82% of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. We got a problem, folks, because 82% of America is not living for Jesus. There are way too many Christians in church who go out into the world and do whatever they want, and there's way too many people out there who think they're part of us. Why? Because there's no line anywhere. So that we can know who's in and who's out. There has to be a border. There has to be a wall. Not to keep anybody out so that we can know who's in and who's out. So that when we invite people into Christ, there's actually something we're inviting them into. That is different from the rest of the world. 82% of Americans claim to be born again. It is our fault that that many people think they're living for Jesus because we have so watered down the gospel, go out and tell everybody God loves them instead of them bringing, bringing them into Christ. That is not okay. There had better be a hard and fast rock wall between us and them so that we know that we're in, and so that there is something in to invite them into. Not to keep them away. We're the frozen chosen we don't need anymore. No, we want you to invite you in, but there must be an in. 
which demands by definition that there's a border, that there is a wall. They have to come through the wall through Jesus. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is the church. It's us. It's the bride prepared for her husband. And holiness means to be separated. Another word that I've never used for holiness, I've never heard another preacher use it, but it's actually more accurate than separation. The word is segregation. Holiness means we are the ones segregated out. Not segregating against someone else. That's not at all based on gender or race or anything like that. We are the ones God has segregated away. Supposed to be. That's holiness. The church cannot be holy unless there's a wall. Unless there's a border or a boundary, a line of some sort. So just as somebody with no personal boundaries is unhealthy and dysfunctional, so it's true with nations and so it's true with the church. And like Nehemiah, my heart breaks and I am very, very concerned about the shameful situation the church is in. Both structurally, governmentally, apostolically, and morally. You know, the Muslims keep their cities holy. Nobody here can go to Mecca or Medina or you would be killed on sight. They keep those cities completely holy, in quotes. They're separated for Muslims only, for Muslim worship. But the church, we let anybody run over us. And we leave whenever we want, go out in the world and have a good time and come back in on Sunday morning. But Luke 21, 24 prophesies this. Jesus is speaking. He said, Jerusalem, and I'm using this in the sense of the church, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I know that has a scripture, uh, has a meaning about earthly Jerusalem, but the church is being overrun by the world because we don't have a wall. The church must have, we desperately need, a wall and gates, a borders, boundaries. Because going back two years ago, for those of you who were here, when I put the cross right here and I talked about Jesus being the line through the universe, he is the dividing line, and you're either in Christ or you're not. It's us that have fudged that line so completely by our own actions and by not clearly defining to the people outside how to come in. Let me say it again. I'm not talking about denominational division. I'm not talking about us fortifying ourselves against the world and keeping people out. I'm saying there has to be a border, a boundary, a line so that we know what we're inviting people into. There are a lot of people in the world, maybe even some in this room, you think you're Christian, but you didn't come in through the door. Well, how did I get in? Because we don't have a wall. (laughs) We ought to have a wall so that people have to go to the door to get in. I'll explain what I mean by all this in just a minute, but let me tell you what it's not. Rich Mullins, I told you this before, let me tell you again. Rich Mullins, the Christian singer, said when he was in high school and he was having a hard time rebelling against God and very hard-hearted, people in his church would come up to him and say, Rich, it's okay, God loves you. And his response was, well, big deal, God loves everybody. People would tell him, Rich, hey, God loves you. It's like, well, big deal, God loves everybody. That doesn't make me special. And he's right. 
Because that's wrong. Don't have a heart attack on me. We have so dumbed down the gospel that we go out in the world and we tell people God loves them and nothing more. But the love of God is in Christ. The peace of God is in Christ. The salvation of God is in Christ. Healing is in Christ. Two years ago, I went through the scriptures. There was like 30-some scriptures that day of what is in Christ. It's all in Christ. So we go traipsing across our destroyed wall where there is no boundary and line between us and the world, and we have so fudged the message that the people out here in the world and the people over here in the church hear the same thing, and there ends up being no change because why do I need to come in if I've already got it out here? Come on. There's no benefit to being a child of God. If God loves everybody the same, well, there's a huge benefit to being a child of God. He's our father, and he's not their father. We want him to be their father. We want them to come into our family and get adopted. It's not excluding, but there better be a line. There there has to be an in and an out so that we can invite them into something. Otherwise, we have a whole bunch of people who say they believe in God, and yeah, Jesus and I are cool, but they've never actually come in. And if they wanted to, it would be really easy. Just step over the rubble and come on in. We've dissolved the borders of God's love, and so there isn't any in or out of the kingdom. It's just, well, God treats everybody the same. There is a benefit to being a child of God. There has to be an entrance into the kingdom. There has to be an outside so that there can be an inside. There has to be an exclusion so that there can be an inclusion. If everybody's included, then by definition, the word included cannot be used. Hello. Look it up in the dictionary. There has to be a wall so that there can be a door. Jesus is not standing out there in the open desert by himself. Here I am, the door, come to me. No, there's a wall on both sides of him that no one can get through. And the invitation is, come to me. Yes, come, 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 come in, come in, come in. But there is no other way. But we have torn down the wall and people are getting in another way. And they will find out on judgment day they didn't get in. And that will be our fault. Because we didn't build the wall. There has to be a kingdom citizenship so that we know who isn't one. So what I see is the the structure of the church, the government, the apostolic government and authority of the church, and the doctrinal structure of the church, and the moral authority of the church is in such shambles that I, I see we got three problems. we got people in Jerusalem sneaking out, That'd be people in the church leaving to go have a party in the world and come back. And that's real easy to do because there's no wall. And a second problem I see is that we have a bunch of illegal immigrants, undocumented Christians, who have joined in with us, have moved in with us, but they didn't come through the legal way. They didn't come through the door. And they're not actually believers. 
I've heard several stories of, maybe you have too, testimonies of people who've been in church for decades and get saved. I know of two pastors who were pastors for 30 years and got born again afterward. Praise God for that kind of humility. Because there's a lot of them that aren't saved. There are a lot of pastors and preachers that aren't saved. A third problem I see is that we got people sneaking in who are the spies. Paid to create confusion. They are what Paul and Jesus call wolves in sheep's clothing. And it's really easy for them to get in because there isn't a fence around the pasture. Jesus' sheep need a fence. So, number one, I see is the unholiness of the church abounds because we don't have a wall around us. Because the grace and love message of God is presented with such omnipotence, there isn't any fear of any line of trespass. Meaning, people who call themselves Christians, you come to church, you serve, you volunteer, you give your time and money or whatever, and you believe in God, but... Would you be able to clearly and concisely draw a line around your own life and say, I know I'm in grace here, but if I go out there, I'm not. I'm not in the heavenly city anymore. I don't know that very many people could do that. And that's the fault of us, pastors and preachers, who haven't drawn that line told people God will forgive whatever you do there ends up being no in and no out so the church has millions of people who claim to be in it but they believe that there's no out preachers preach there's no hell preachers that preach you'll be forgiven for anything no matter how many times or how hard-hearted you get but there has to be an out so there can be an in there isn't a heaven unless there's a hell Come on, if there is no hell, there is no heaven. It's just limbo. (laughs) There has to be a comparison for something to be good. You can't be God's children unless there are those that aren't. There's no righteousness unless there's sin. We're not forgiven unless you actually admit you need it. We need a clearly defined border around us so that we know what to stay away from. Like I said, Jesus' sheep need a fence. There's got to be a wall of holiness around our city, the heavenly city, the church, capital C. A line of trespass that we understand, if I do that, I have left Jesus. And that's not a specific deed, that is a heart condition that fruits out in deeds. We've got to know, outside of this, I'm outside the grace of God, I've left safety and salvation. I've left Jerusalem. The other problem I see is that we've got a a lot of people who have immigrated into the church but not become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They're here with us thinking they're saved, but they aren't. They want to be a part of us, and they came in another way. Mostly it's genuine people, but their idea is that we're here to be good. So they come to be religious. They come for charity work, or they come to be good citizens. 
and they're genuine and real in that desire. But they haven't come through the door. They've moved into the church, but because we didn't have a wall, they got in a way other than Jesus. And they sit in church for years, decades, not knowing that they're missing it. I told you my dad just two and a half years ago said in church all of his life, 63 years, he said, I always knew everybody else had something that I didn't. And now I know it's Jesus. My dad got saved two and a half years ago because he can draw a line. He can look at his life and in his heart and in the revelation of his mind and he can say, before that day, I didn't have that. I didn't know it. And now I do. He crossed the line. But he was in the church from the time he was the youngest boy. And he was missing Jesus the entire time. So these people, they have religion. They're good people. They look like a real Christian maybe from the outside. Some are hypocrites, but mostly they're really genuine people. And we are doing them a terrible disservice by not drawing a line and saying you have to come in here. This is the definition. This is the limitation of what it means to be a Christian. But because the wall is down, people have wandered in unnoticed, and so they wander out unnoticed. How often does that happen around here? Somebody comes in for a few weeks or months, they don't ever really attach, and then they're gone. We need a wall. We need a border not to keep them out. Not to keep them out. Let me say it again. Not to keep anybody out. But to say, this is how we know you're in. Because you've crossed the line. And we want you to be in. But you've got to come in through the gate. Jesus said, there will be many who call him Lord who are not saved. Come on. Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord. But I don't know you. Only Jesus speaking, only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. Christianity is so unstructured now, so fluid, so undefined, so boundaryless, that anyone thinks he may or she may call him herself or herself a Christian, and that's not true. There is a door in the wall of heaven, and to enter in, we absolutely must go through him. There is no other way. So I'm going to have to skip several pages here. So what is that wall? What, what am I talking about? What does that look like? I'm talking about drawing a border around us according to the word of God and his moral and church government commands, and we do not go outside that line. And we are inviting our friends and family, our students and classmates, our neighbors and coworkers, we're inviting them to come inside that with us. Come in and be in Christ with us. Don't just join in our meeting, but come into Christ. That's the wall or the border I'm talking about is it's the word of God, it's the protection of God, it's the love of God, it's the grace of God that is in Christ. The bubble of glory in a dark world. 
come in, come in, come in with us. But what is that border? What's that boundary? What's it look like? What are the non-negotiables that would somebody know you've come in through Christ? Number one, Jesus is God's son. This is the definition of are you in Christ or not? Do, you, do, you, do your beliefs line up with scripture? Can we know that we know the truth? Jesus is God's son. Number two, Jesus is eternal and uncreated. Jesus is eternal and uncreated. He was not just a man. But he is fully God and fully human. There's no lessening of his deity. There's no lessening of his humanity. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. All other teachings or religions are lies. That is holiness. This is it. We're set apart for this one way. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. The Bible has no errors. It is the inspired word of God. And God's teachings and morality do not change over time. You hear me? Somebody who truly is in Christ understands that the Bible is the standard. It is God's measuring rod Jesus, the Word of God, the Bible as we have it in book form is no errors. It is the inspired Word of God. And what was wrong 4,000 years ago is still wrong in 2016. And what is right and God commanded 4,000 years ago, He still commands today. There's no rewriting of Scripture. We must repent of our sin to come into Christ. We're talking about how do you get through the door. We come to Jesus, and to get through the door, we must repent of our sin. It doesn't mean we won't sin again. It means we hate it and turn away from it. We reject it. When we do it again, we repent again. We live in repentance. We must be water baptized. You must join the church. There are no Lone Ranger, solo artist Christians out there. You're part of the body of Christ. If a body part gets cut off, it's dead. We must be connected to Jesus through the church. That doesn't mean you have, you're required by law to come to church every Sunday. Don't run off with these legalistic interpretations of what I'm saying. We have to be joined with a church. If any one of those is missing, I would love to talk with you. If you haven't been water baptized yet, let's get you wet. <laughs> if you have been baptized but you're living in secret sin, I would love to pray for your freedom. If you believe in God and Jesus but you've just never made that decision to actually draw his line around your life of morality and his commands, we would love to bring you in. We would love to bring you in. The wall I'm talking about is not about division between denominations or suspicion between the church and the world. It's not cutting off relationships with people we love. I'm talking about drawing a very clear line so that we have something to invite people into. Nehemiah knew it was God's will that Jerusalem have a wall around it for protection and for its own glory and so that the people of God would have a place to be inside of. 
borders and boundaries and walls are godly. Our culture is very confused. There's a lot of paid liars out there. There's a lot of paid liars out there. God invites you into his, inside his wall for protection and salvation to be a part of his family. We would love to have you with us this morning. If you know for sure you're in, praise the Lord. If you have any questions, there are some of us that would love to talk with you. And let's work through it and make sure. Be sure. That's faith. To be sure. That's faith. I'm sure. If you're not sure, please let us talk with you. Let us pray with you. Let us lead you in through the gate. Because we know him and he's great. We would be very happy to introduce you. Lord, we love you. Praise you. Thank you for your wall of protection around us. Thank you for your line that you draw that is very clear of your expectations, of your commands, of your protection, of your glory, of your beauty. Lord, your heavenly wall is made with precious stones and diamonds. Even your boundaries are beautiful. The borders of your kingdom, Lord, are beautiful. We submit to your laws and commands. We submit to the boundaries that you have drawn for our life. We say that we want to live in your beautiful heavenly city. We want to live in your kingdom. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for directing us, for fencing us in, keeping out the wolves. You make us lie down in green pastures because we are very much at peace. Under the rod and the staff of our shepherd, inside your fence. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here, Lord, that needs to come in the right way, I pray that you would speak that right now. That there would be godly fear that leads to repentance and salvation that comes right now. Holy Spirit, drop it in the room. And bring real purity and real salvation and real kingdom citizenship right now.